All right, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. I think you might already be there. Uh, as is our custom, we're taking a break from our Acts study to follow up on the Man Camp message. So Matthew chapter 8, this is the base text that uh, Ron Jones preached to us from. And remember that Jesus Christ has just done the miracle. Let's, let's read it, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? What manner of man is this? And so his message was, that that's a question that was asked about uh, Elijah. And here it's asked about Jesus Christ. And what Brother Ron was asking us is, what kind of what manner of man are you? How would the Bible describe you? But I wanted to talk about Jesus and what manner of man he was this morning, manner of man that he is. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word. And I do re repeat that prayer every time I preach. But Lord, I am very thankful that we get to study your word. So Father, help us to get some encouragement from it, some challenge in Jesus' name. Amen. When this question was asked, what manner of man is this? The, the, the point of the question was he, that, that the, the winds and the waves obeyed him. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Now, I know that our politicians think that the winds and the waves obey the climate activists. That if, you know, someone else had been elected president five years ago or whatever, that we wouldn't have hurricanes. How many of you know that no man can do that? Only the God-man, Jesus Christ. What manner of man is this? We have a good explanation of this topic in the book of 1 Timothy and I want us to go there because the Apostle Paul gives his testimony and then gives his statement on this. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 15, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Everyone needs to accept it. It's worthy of being accepted by everyone. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What manner of man is he? He's the manner of man that came into this world to save sinners. That's why he came. That's the manner of man he is. What kind of man does he save? This is a, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto him, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great God. Uh, there's a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached, and it was uh, a great... A great Savior for great sinners. A great Savior for great sinners. 
And he broke his message down on this text to three points. His points were the kind of men that Jesus saves, the chiefest of sinners. Why would he save them to show a pattern? And what did they have to say about the one who saved them? That's a pretty good outline for that text. And he had some amazing things to say. I am going to read a small section from that message today. But uh, I want us to look, first of all, at the kind of man that Jesus saved. So look at what it says in verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, whenever I have referenced this message or this, this passage of whom I am chief, where Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners, How many of you know that, that you're a pretty bad sinner? But Spurgeon pointed something out to me that really helped me understand this passage better. When he's talking about the chiefest of sinners, he identifies what that means. Isn't it fun when the Bible explains itself? So when Paul is giving that testimony, it's not a humble, you know, it's not a humble brag, yes. I know I'm an NBA player, but I'm not the best NBA player. That, that's not what he's doing. Let's look at verse 12, and we'll see. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So he, he's amazed. Paul is amazed that God put him in the ministry. Why? Here's what the chiefest of sinners is. Verse 13 who was before a blasphemer, a blasphemer. What, what is a blasphemer? A blasphemer is someone who speaks evil of God, someone who speaks irreverently of God. And this is why, especially in Western culture, it's always been bad to take the Lord's name in vain. When you hear someone use God's name as an expletive, as a swear word, that's a bad thing, because that is blasphemy. Now, taking the Lord's name in vain, the actual doctrinal understanding of that is not calling on him as your Savior. You repeat a prayer, you say something that's empty, you, you repeat a catechism, you know, I believe that Jesus Christ is creator of the world, and, and you just recite it by rote, but you don't believe it in your heart. How many of you ever did that in your past? How many of you, you would say it at church, you would say it at school, you would repeat this statement, but you didn't know what you were saying. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what it is. Vanity is emptiness. There's no actual meaning or belief to it that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There has to be an object of your belief, and that is the name of Jesus. For there is none other name among heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Our faith has an object. And what was Paul doing? Paul was killing people who believed that. 
That's the kind of blasphemer that Paul was. Let's go back to our text. Who was before, verse 13, a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. So there's different types of persecution. His blasphemy was killing people who named the name of Christ. We're done in Matthew. Hold your place in Timothy and go to Acts chapter 8. Stephen has just preached his famous sermon in Acts chapter 7. The Jews have killed him. They've stoned him. Acts, and by stoning, that is, they throw rocks at him until he's dead. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul, so this is the apostle Paul. His name was Saul before God changed his name to Paul. And Saul was consenting unto his death. That is Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. They mourned over him. And they made it an event so people would remember Stephen. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into, what's that next word? Every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the gospel. And what Paul was doing was he was hauling them into prison. He was, he was going against the people. He was, in, he was doing horrible things. Listen to what Spurgeon said about Paul. Yet this was merely a beginning. Saul was like a leopard who having once tasted blood must always have his tongue in it. His very breath was threatening. He was breathing out slaughter. His very breath was threatening and his delight was slaughter. He harassed the people of God. He made great havoc of the saints. He compelled them, he says, to blaspheme. He had them beaten in the synagogues, driven from city to city, even put to death. This must have remained upon his heart as a dark memory, even after the Lord Jesus Christ had fully forgiven him. When he knew, as Paul did know, that he was a justified man through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, yet he must always have felt a smiting at his heart to think that these innocent lambs had been worried by him that for no other reason than that they were lovers of the crucified, he had panted for their blood. This matter of deadly persecution placed Saul head and shoulders above other sinners. Now, how many of you know that Jesus forgave him? Can you imagine what it would be like to forgive yourself? I don't think he ever did. This is why he would call himself the chiefest of sinners. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly 
in unbelief. So this chiefest of sinners, I thank God that in our culture, it's against the law to harm people because of their faith. Amen? We need to keep that up. But there are people that would still, if they could, harm believers would. Spurgeon goes on to give a great explanation of this. He said, you can, so you might not have done what Saul did, but you can go very near to this. In all probability, certain of you have done so. Listen to what he says. This is so good. And some of you have experienced this. That husband who has threatened his wife so bitterly if she obeys her conscience. That man who has discharged his servant for no other reason but his fidelity to Christ, faithfulness to Christ. That landlord who has turned out his cottager from his home because he held, uh, uh, because he held a religious service beneath his roof. That man who has willfully and maliciously slandered a servant of God, not because he did him any harm, but because he cannot bear to hear of any truly following after Christ. These are the people who must be reckoned among the chief of sinners. They have done no murder, but they have gone as far as they dare go, and their heart is full of venom against the people of God. This is a grievous crime, though it may seem a very small thing to grieve a pious child or to vex a poor godly woman. God does not think it so. He remembers jests and scoffs leveled at his little ones, and he bids those who indulge in them to take heed. You had better offend a king than one of the Lord's little ones. That poor man in the workshop who has had so hard a time of it with your jests has a friend in the heavens. That other man who, seeking the Lord, has found a cold shoulder in society, has an advocate on high who will not see him despised, who without, or who will not see him despised without espousing his cause. It may appear a trifle to make a saint the target of ridicule, but his father in heaven does not think so. I know this, that many patient men will bear a great deal. But if you strike their children, their blood is up and they will have at it. A father will not stand by to see his child abused. And the great father above is as tender and fond as any other father. You have seen among birds and beasts that they will put forth all their strength for their young. A hen, naturally very timid, will fight for her little chicks with all the courage of a lion. Some of the smallest of animals and the least powerful nevertheless become perfectly fierce and terrible when they are taking care of their offspring. And think you that the everlasting God will bear to see his children maligned and slandered and abused for their following of him? Is the God of nature without natural affection? I trow not, I believe not. You shall rue the day, sir, in which you took up arms against the people of God. Humble yourself before God on account of it. Otherwise, you will be numbered among the chief of sinners and the chief of punishments shall be meted out to you. How about that? Now imagine that. That's in, that's in 1885. Can you imagine 
what our cultures are doing against Christians today. Yes, we do have the cheapest of sinners. We have political leaders who want to kill children and put us in prison when we stand against it. There was just a man who was defending his son in front of an abortion clinic. An evil man was saying wicked things to his son. He got between the man and his son. The man stepped forward. The man pushed the other guy back. President Biden just had 25 or 30 FBI agents raid that man's home. For defending his child. I'm just telling you. There is a God in heaven. There is a great God that will defend his people. These chiefest of sinners. We have an advocate with the father. And I'm just telling you. We need not to be timid. We need not to be cowed. We not need not to be fearful. In the face of this kind of oppression. You know what the hardest part is? These are the people that God will save. These people that want to kill the children. These people that want to stand against us. There is a a, a case coming before the Supreme Court soon where a lady doesn't want to, a Christian lady doesn't want to design websites for homosexual businesses because it violates her Christian faith. She's having to go through the courts to be able to live out her Christian faith. The other courts are the chiefest of sinners attacking a lady for living out her Christian faith and understanding what the Bible says about men and women and their interaction together. The chiefest of sinners are coming against them. We don't know what our government will do, but we do know this, that that kind of sin still exists even in our culture. And the hard part for me as a Christian is to realize that God wants to save them too. Have we gotten so divided as Christians, Republican, Democrat, that we don't understand that our job, yes, it's to stand politically. It is to to vote right and to speak our consciences. We must do that, but we must also do it in a way so that those people know that there is a God, that they will answer to that God, but he will save them. And here's the hard part. And we want that to happen. Y'all know me. There's some people that I want to go to hell. They're so wicked and they're so evil. Like in Psalm 139 where Jesus, where, where David wrote, Oh, how I hate them. I hate them with perfect hatred. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. How many of you feel that exact same way about when they, they mutilate children's bodies based on a social agenda to violate cultural norms? When a little boy says, I don't think I want to be a boy, and they do surgery on him before he's mentally capable of understanding what's going on. That is absolute wickedness, and I hate that. And yet, Jesus died for those people. So how do we find that balance between standing for the right? What manner of men are we to be? Here's what we're to do. We're to call out the sin and the sinner and tell them to repent. I don't know if you all have seen it, but John MacArthur put out a statement 
He did it either before or after one of his sermons, and it's all over the world now, about Governor Newsom. His church is in California. Governor Newsom is his governor. And what Newsom is doing is he is putting up signs all over the United States inviting women to come to California where they will happily kill their children. And you know what he do, you know what the signs say? They quote Jesus about loving your neighbor. And MacArthur said, this man, Governor Newsom, his very soul is in danger because there is a God. I fear for him because there is a holy God who said, if you offend one of these, my little ones, it'd be better that a millstone be tied about your neck and you be cast in the sea. It's one of the boldest statements I've ever seen a preacher make publicly. But he did it so well because his desire is for Governor Newsom to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what did he do? He identified the wickedness of what he was doing, the blasphemy of his citing Jesus Christ, his danger because he is going to answer to a righteous and holy God, and he gave him the message, the hope of salvation and repentance. Folks, that's what we have to do. That's the manner of people that we must be. But we can't do it by soft soaping. The, the transgender issue, that is a perversity and it is mental illness. It is wickedness and every, the, the 40, there is a 40% suicide rate among transgenders after the surgery. It doesn't fix anything. It just helps their delusions. And we have a culture that says if you stand up for that. How many of you saw the, the homecoming king in uh, Troy? Did all of you see that? And here's what we need to know. It's the children that vote for that because of the leadership. Do you know what those kids need to know? They can be saved. Do you know what that young man needs to know? That there is a, there is a Savior who came into the world to save sinners. God has a plan for that young man, and it is not what was evidenced in that picture. God loves him Someone has to tell him. And those children who voted for that, what kind of a culture are we establishing people? What kind of man ought we to be? What manner of men ought we to be? Stand. Be strong. Speak against evil while giving the hope of Jesus Christ. Look at the next passage. Look at what it says. Verse 13 again, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. We have to tell them the truth. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus Christ is the one who came to Paul. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He didn't let it go. He didn't say it's okay that you're doing it. You have your choice. I have my choice. You have your truth. I have my truth. No, no. They were persecuting the church. He was persecuting the church. And Jesus said, why persecutest thou me? Why? Because all those that are in the church are in Jesus Christ. 
But Paul obtained mercy, the Bible says. Verse 16, how be it for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Here's what Paul is saying. If he can save me, he can save you. If God's grace is enough for me, it's enough for you. And I say to you today, if God's grace is enough for me, it's enough for you. Are you born again? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? It's why he came to save sinners. He died for the ungodly. That's us. What manner of men ought we to be? Men who understand the grace of God And we must first receive the grace of God ourselves so that we can be saved. And then we extend that grace to others who honestly we don't like. I don't like people that mutilate children. I don't like people that teach them it's okay. I I don't like people that raise children to think it's okay to do things with their bodies that the Bible calls an abomination. That destroys them spiritually. I don't think that's okay. I don't like those people. And yet, we must show forth the grace of God while calling out the sin, offer the grace. Amen? What kind of a man was he? He was the chief of sinners. What kind of savior was he? Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the kind of savior he is. You know what's good about that? That's the only kind of people there are. Sinners. So you know what that means? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save everybody. Are you born again? Have you trusted Christ as your savior? Is he your God? Is he your king? If he is, then there's a testimony that you can give. Look at what it says. Verse 17, now. I like that word now. What do you think that means? Now. So when when are we supposed to give this praise? Now. Now. Unto the king. Eternal. Immortal. Invisible. The only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, God. The King eternal, that King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God is the one who took on flesh and blood and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and was beaten and died on that cross and was buried in the third day, rose from the dead. That's the one we worship. That's the one who came. What manner of men ought we to be? The men who live that out in the world. We don't compromise the message. We live the message. And we're proud of it. We're thankful for it. We're humbled to have the opportunity to speak it. Those are the people that we are to be. Man, it's so easy to focus on the darkness. What Paul does is he raises our eyes to the light. Man, we have a message to give to the world. And then, of course, this is a pastoral epistle. Paul is teaching Timothy what manner of man ought he to be. And how are we to behave ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Verse 18, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, 
that thou by them mightest be a gentle and soft man of God. What are the words that God uses here? War, a good warfare. When you think of warring, a warfare. That doesn't sound soft. Man, I love to see a TV show and there's somebody that they've been kidnapped and all of a sudden some men bust into the room in this seemingly God-forsaken place. The person's blindfolded and they're scared. And the men say, we're from the United States of America. How many of you get kind of goosebumps when that happens? Do you know what we do? We burst into a seemingly God-forsaken world and say, I come with a message from the king. You can be saved. You have, This is our charge. We are to war a good warfare. Why? How do we do that? Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. Let me tell you something. The chiefest of sinners, the people that hate Christians and Christianity the most, are young people like you who have heard the truth and who have rejected it and who walk away from it and then want to destroy the faith of others. Do you know what they do? They make their lives a shipwreck. And what God wants to do is take you safely home. You see, at some point, right now, your parents restrain you. And listen, it's awesome when you get out of your parents' house and you can make your own decisions. Don't let anybody tell you any different. It is wonderful. It's a bummer when you realize you don't have any tools and you got to go get your dad's. It's a bummer when you realize you don't really have enough money to live and you're going to need mom and dad to help you. It's wonderful to know that they're there and that they're there for counsel and to help you. The freedom, all of you adults, isn't it wonderful when you get out of the house and you can have your own place? Isn't that a great thing? How many of you want your children to leave today so that you can have peace and quiet? Raise your hands. Yes, you guys are on your own. That's it. You're done. You drop you like a hot potato. At some point, you're going to have to make the choice. Am I going to worship the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise king? The only wise God. Is that the one that I'm going to worship? Am I going to live that out? What manner of man am I going to be? Ladies, what manner of lady are you going to be? Because I can promise you this. The best life in the world is the life that God has prepared for us. That's our life. That's what we have. But some people make their life shipwreck. How many of you know somebody that used to be in church, but now they hate God and God's people? They're the enemy of God. That's the chiefest of sinners. And here's the thing, man, I hope those people are saved. You know, a person can get saved and turn into a real jerk. We know that. But if they're not saved, they're going, I'm just telling you, the chiefest of sinners, as Spurgeon said, receive the cheapest, the chiefest of punishments. This is a real thing. What do we need to tell them? Man, you are in danger. Come back to God. Repent. Repent. Let's look at what it says. Let's see how he is to war a good warfare. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. Oh man, he names them. Verse 20, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have, I just love these guys. I'm praying for their ministries. They're really not that bad. 
whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here's the deal. You can serve God or you can serve Satan. There's the God of this world or there's the one true God. Those are your options. You're either with God or you are with Satan. That's what it comes down to. And can I promise you something? You'd rather be with God. You know why? God loves you. Satan hates you. God wants your best. Satan wants your destruction. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a destroyer of the brethren. That's who he is. Who's God? He's the prince of peace, the everlasting father, the mighty God. That's who he is. Folks, we can get caught up in the mundanity, in in the day-to-day in, in, in the debauchery and, and stupidity of modern politics and in this world. Or we can stand for the truth and say, I worship the one true God and I am come with a message from the king. I am going to stand in faith and I am going to war a good warfare as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells Timothy in another place, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he might please him who's called him to be a soldier. We we serve the king. That's who we are. So what do we do? We take a stand for the truth. We understand that there are people that are the chiefest of sinners. And we also want them to know that Jesus died for them too. Let's all stand together. Am I the only one? How many of you struggle with standing for the truth? And wanting them to be saved. How many of you actually you struggle keeping that in mind? <laughs> I'm going to say something profound that you might not hear in another church. That's why you're not God. How many of you are glad you're not God? What a great Savior. What a great God. And when the Bible says he is abundant in mercy... The the Bible calls that the riches of his grace. And Jesus wants to bestow the riches of his grace on the chiefest of sinners. I don't get it, but I'm so glad that that's who God, listen, has told us to be. Let's be those people, amen? And if you're here and you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you're not promised tomorrow. Let today be the day that you come to salvation.